Hello and welcome. Bienvenido. And assalamu alaikum. Welcome to AO Access to Success. The podcast series developed by the AO Access Task Forces to broaden your perspectives for personal and professional development. Today's podcast is hosted by Dr. Matthew Allen, the lead for the AO Access Task Force Officer and Faculty Selection Processes. Hello and welcome to this Access podcast. My name is Matthew Allen. I'm a veterinarian and professor of small animal surgery at the University of Cambridge, and I'm delighted to be hosting this podcast in the Access to Success series. Today's podcast focuses on the use of personal stories, conversations, and reflections to help identify and leverage the parallels between leadership development and diversity and inclusion initiatives. I'm delighted to welcome as co-host for today's podcast, Professor Amy Kapatkin, the first woman to hold the presidency of AO North America. Professor Kapatkin, can I hand over to you to say a few words of introduction and to introduce our guest? Yes, thank you so much, Dr. Allen. I'm also a veterinarian, and I am a presently a professor of small animal orthopedic surgery at the University of California, Davis. I get the great honor of introducing Dr. Erica Taylor. Dr. Erica Taylor is a practicing orthopedic hand surgeon at Duke University. As a proud member of the Duke University community, she is heavily committed to various aspects of leadership. She is the vice chair of diversity and inclusion for the Department of Orthopedics and was recently appointed as the first Duke Health Associate Chief Medical Officer for diversity, equity, and inclusion for the physician organization. In 2020, she founded the Orthopedic Diversity Leadership Consortium, a pioneering organization whose mission is to elevate the necessary components of inclusive leadership in healthcare through network and strategy development. She has worked closely with pipeline programs and national organizations that strive to promote successful pathways into orthopedic surgery for populations that are underrepresented in this field. I'm very excited to have you here, Dr. Taylor. I'd like you to say a few words, maybe to outline your experience and expertise in this topic. Thank you. And um, I just want to give my gratitude to the AO Foundation for um, really intentionally devoting time, energy, and um, education to this effort. Um, so the introduction, um, you know, it was just a great landscape for our conversation today. I think being in orthopedic surgery, we presume that there are these lived experiences that are going to inform us on how to do this work well, right? We all know the statistics about orthopedic surgery. It's a relatively homogenous profession, but slowly over time, we've recognized the importance of diversity and inclusion. But I would also say that it is the professional experiences that have added to what some consider expertise in this area. And when you look around and you see organizations, corporations striving to be more diverse in their offerings, diverse in their industry sector, offering different types of positions, getting their economics to improve, you see a lot of synergy between diversity and um, the business world. And so I thank you for the introduction. I also want to add my connection to the AO Foundation goes back several, several years to when I was a resident 
taking one of the AO trauma courses. And I learned so much about the principles of fracture fixation that I still use today. So again, it's just an honor to be here sharing my experiences and my knowledge base with you and your um, constituents. Well, Dr. Taylor, that's a great segue into then the, this, this conversation. So we're really excited to have you and for you to, to leverage your background and experience and particularly through your work with ODLC, you're really in an excellent position to share with us ideas on the importance of diversity to and within a healthcare organization such as AO. And I guess my first question relates to the, what you were talking about, to this business imperative that drives diversity. Rather than just being seen as a box checking exercise, why are businesses and organizations increasingly seeing diversity and inclusion as good business? Oh, thank you, Dr. Allen. That's a, that's a very important observation. I actually get that same inquiry from my colleagues quite often. Um, you know, why are we paying attention so much to this? I remember the days where we could have a diversity committee and that was enough. Well, you know, I, I would say if you look closely, um, maybe to the last 10 or 15 years, you'll see many patterns of designating maybe a woman of the organization or someone who identifies as a minority or the intersection as a diversity expert. And typically, if consumers called for more inclusion in your services and your offerings or in your board of director composition, people thought having a committee or having one person was sufficient to address all of these issues. And as academia caught up with DEI efforts, what we found in research is that designating someone as a diversity committee member or a leader was simply not enough. And now, especially with the power of networks, social media, um, widespread communications, our consumers, whether it's patients or actual retail consumers, are calling for more intentional action. And as more of the pioneering organizations came to the forefront, I mean, you have your Pelotons, your Amazons, you know, some of the bigger um, Apple, for example, companies that had more press, other organizations started to follow suit. And so I think we're going to see this pattern continue. I think our patients are going to call for it. I think our team members who we work with are going to call for it. Our employees are going to call for us creating more inclusion in our environment. And so that person that I just mentioned who was tapped to be a diversity committee leader needs some support, needs some resources, needs a team for themselves to really make this right. And one thing I often um, advise organizations is it is okay to have your content experts for this subject, but do recognize that there is shared accountability, shared responsibility for implementing these efforts throughout the organization, not just in an office down the hall. No longer is that enough. Following on from that, Dr. Taylor, how and why is a business mindset helpful when thinking of diversity and inclusion initiatives? Oh, thank you for that. Um, that's an interesting question. So getting back to what Dr. Allen had just asked about um, why are we seeing more companies, organizations moving towards this? One of the salient points about the benefits of being more diverse in your workforce and in your environment has to do with economics. And so that's one way to speak language for corporate America and for healthcare is to talk about finances, talk about market share, talk about growth and expansion. And so when you look at how uh, different communities um, have purchasing patterns, 
What type of providers are they seeking? Where is the communication greatest? Where are the outcomes the best? You will see that parallel between business and healthcare. Now, I want to be clear. There is uh, an argument to be made that being inclusive, embracing equity and diversity should not have to be a proof of concept when it comes to economics. However, the concept of, well, let's just do this because it's the right thing to do, no longer holds water in organizations or for employees. So we have to make a business case in a way of why opening doors, redefining excellence really benefits the entire organization and enterprise. And I think that's the foundation of those synergies between a business mindset, looking at the bottom line, looking at value creation, and also being more equitable in doing so. I may just follow up with a question relating to that. Um, you know, we, we talked about the business case. So, so can you give us a little bit more depth on, you know, what are the costs of some of these initiatives? Not necessarily figure the dollar figures, but what are the tangible costs to organization of doing these sorts of initiatives, doing them the way you say intentionally versus what are the costs of, of not doing so in the current era? No, excellent question. And so um, I agree. Let's dig in a little deeper on that. So first you ask, what are the costs of doing these efforts? If you look at um, faculty recruitment, that comes with a cost. Now, traditionally, when we talk to healthcare organizations, the way faculty, whether it's surgeons or internists, pediatricians, et cetera, were onboarded or recruited was really by word of mouth. Now, yes, we have job postings, but what ultimately happened was the networks would identify rising stars and those would be the, the ones who are recruited for new positions. So the cost of being expansive with your search have to do with, well, I can't just go to my friends. I can't just go to people I know. Now I actually have to cast a wider net. I may have to travel to a conference and recruit. I may have to go to a minority serving institution such as an HBCU and recruit more actively than I had to before. And, and that's some you know minimal cost to do so. But the cost of not doing that, not being inclusive with your searches and your onboarding is where we see the cost of faculty turnover. So if you create an environment where there is a staunch hierarchy where only certain people succeed, you're going to lose staff, you're going to lose faculty, you're going to lose a lot of your workforce. And that's very expensive. Um, I often will joke and say I'm very expensive to replace, but it is cheaper to keep me. And so it is that concept of, yes, there are upfront costs to running initiatives, to soliciting consultant advice, to being more um, inclusive with how we do business. But the cost of losing our good team players is you know, excessive. In addition, if you want to go to what is the cost to people? I mean, we're really talking about lives here. So we have data that shows that having a diverse provider actually can improve your health outcomes. In some cases, having, for example, a female primary care doctor has been shown to add years to patients' lives. You know, there's this is multifactorial. I don't want to make the, the assumption that it's just a demographic that leads to this, but there is something about having an environment that is diverse in the clinical space that impacts patients positively. There's a lot of data that shows if we allow health disparities to persist, it costs our country billions of dollars. We're talking about work time loss, lost wages, the economy will go down. 
We're also talking about distrust of the medical system in general if we allow racial, gender, health inequities to persist. So I think there's different levels, Dr. Allen, of how we talk about cost. And no matter how you slice it, the cost of not being equitable is too high, whether it's monetary or actually we're talking about human lives. That's a great answer and, and, and really relevant to AO's mission, of course, as well, where the costs may be slightly different in the sense of, no, we're not a, a business facing you know, commercial organization in that regard, but the, the cost there, all of that education, the investment in individuals and their leadership skills, et cetera, if we lose those individuals because of the culture we create, then replacing them and, and training people anew and bringing them in and bringing them along is so much more expensive in the end. And if we are going to remain best in class, then we're going to need to have a very close and, as you say, an intentional perspective on leveraging, keeping these individuals within our organization, which requires an active, intentional strategy, not just, oh, well, they'll always come because we're best in class. Thank you. Yes, and I can add a little bit of information uh, about AO to this topic. I think it was most memorable to me when I was running AO's uh, North America's Education Committee, and certainly in our large animal courses, there had been really no women faculty teaching in that. It was really all men. And when they did invite a woman to teach in their course, the feedback from that course, I, I think the most memorable feedback was it was wonderful to see a role model of a woman teaching equine orthopedics to us. And I had heard that had never happened before. So think about things like that, Dr. Taylor. You know, how does that impact education and a business sense? For example, what do you find in, in how that impacts education and business? No, thank you for that. Um, you know, that's a that's a great story and, and one that we are very familiar with across the board. I think every organization has had that moment where they realize, wow, this is the first time we actually had some diversity on our panel or on our board of directors or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the importance to education is recognizing that we're not only focusing on someone's social identity. I mean, if we had the time, we could go into how race is really a social construct. And if you go to someone's genetic makeup, we really aren't that different based on the color of our skin. However, there are different things that we think about and that we talk about. There's a different way we speak, a different way we teach when the people in the room are different than us. And I think that's the beauty of having a heterogeneous environment is that there are things that we would think about that we wouldn't have were it not for the fact that the person sitting next to me was different than I was. There is a lot of research, particularly on the business side of the issue with having homogenous groups and the potential for groupthink, um, how better ideas are born when you have more diverse groups on your team. I will always forever reference um, one of my favorite books by uh, Scott Page called The Diversity Bonus, where he really breaks down the mathematical bonus, economic bonus of having heterogeneous teams when solving complex problems. And no one can argue that medical problems are not, <laughs> are not complex. And so when you talk about education and you look at how our target audiences, how our learners are changing, how our patients are evolving and changing um, in the communities we serve, 
We need to match that with who is giving instruction, how they're giving the instruction, and what their cultural experiences are. I I think it's multi-level. It's not just about their identity. It's what that identity brought to them in their experiences before they sit in front of a a course um, to give a, a seminar or a lecture. Erica, I mean, I think you brought up an interesting point. It always amazes me that we work within a medical field where there is a huge bonus for having diversity of perspective. You know, we need an internist, we need somebody to advise as a radiologist, etc. It's not just a surgeon sitting in in his or her room fixing the patient. We need this group approach. It always surprises me that we're so reluctant to join that with these other perspectives we do. So much of what we do is benefit. I doubt I'll get to the end of my life and complain uh, I should have had less diversity. I enjoy the collaborative approach, and it's been hugely influential on my training. So in particular, through your experience with ODLC, you'll know about the importance of evidence and outcomes in changing perspectives, and orthopedic practice is increasingly built on that sort of evidence. Can you tell us about and possibly share some data demonstrating how DNI initiatives positively affect outcomes? Sure. One thing um, that we've highlighted, and this is beyond orthopedics, is a study that came out a few years ago that showed that if a, an individual who identified as African-American had an African-American primary care doctor, they actually had better health co- outcomes in terms of compliance with medication, compliance with visits, more open communication. And that type of study, I think at the core of the study, it's about 70 pages long, um, but that type of work has been reiterated. In orthopedics, though, the data that we have really um, put on the forefront is actually showing the deleterious effects of not having diversity in the teams. So, for example, there are a lot of studies about health um, disparities in terms of who's offered uh, an elective knee replacement or an elective hip replacement and who's offered conservative treatment. We see a parallel to that in cardiology studies, who's offered non-invasive treatment for heart disease, who's offered catheterization procedures. And what it comes down to is factors such as marital status, gender, and identity in terms of race and ethnicity. And so we've seen that by having more attention to this, we can help eliminate those disparities. But if you take a trip down to the business world, there are more studies that show the value of having diverse personalities, diverse experiences, diverse skill sets at the table. And that goes back to one of our first questions in this, in this discussion. How can we learn from corporate America, from the business sector, how to make the case for being inclusive in our work environments in healthcare? And I think the answers have always been in front of us. But in healthcare, we tend to think of ourselves as very distinct, almost above the law sometimes, and that the rules of corporate America don't apply to us because we're so different. But I do think there are things objectively that we can learn from them to do better. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to expand on that a little bit, Dr. Taylor. Can you talk a little bit about what happens in healthcare when really the organization has hired one underrepresented group person, but the reality is when you only have one person, they become a token. Can you expand on that and how that may affect business decisions and and the impact of of that on the organization? Oh, this is is an important, 
important point. Um, thank you for bringing this up. Uh, you know, we let's use my profession, orthopedic surgery, as a, an example. And so if you look at our, our workforce, the most recent data would suggest that maybe 4% identify as African-American, upwards of 10 or 11% identify as female. And if you look at the intersection, for example, there's 0.3% of the workforce that identifies as an African-American female, right? So we're, we're talking about very low numbers in a, you know, multi tens of thousand individual profession. If you are going to be in an academic center, chances are you will have um, low numbers of certain demographic identities in your department. And I do think this is where some of the lessons learned from business about how to have cross-cultural communication, how to have productive meetings really comes into play. Because instead of assuming what the interests, goals, and desires are of that minority person, however it's defined, you really should have a conversation. When someone is onboarded to an organization that is known to be homogenous or is known to be early on in this journey to equity, it is important to have open, candid conversation with the new onboarders. What are your fears? What are your goals? What can we do to support you? It is best to do this up front. Many organizations don't do this. And it's that balance between wanting to treat everyone the same, but then the other side, understanding that people are not the same. So how do you reconcile that? How do I treat you the same while treating you differently? And you know, one of my mentors, Dr. Michael Parks, who's a past president of OREF, said to treat people the same, you do have to treat them differently. And that's where equity comes in. And so that's one advice I would give to those listening today is do not be afraid to engage in communication, particularly when someone may have a different identity from the rest of the organization to ask, what can we do to support you? And then check in frequently. Um, but to the point you brought up, though, how do you avoid what we sometimes coin the minority faculty tax? which is when one person gets tapped to serve on all the different committees because you want to diversify the committee, but you can only do so with a few individuals. Um, and unfortunately, those committee works typically go uncompensated and detracts from the actual revenue generating activity, such as seeing patients. Um, and so how do you balance that? And I think it goes to one of the first or second points we talked about today, which is how do you resource these works? So this is full circle. As organizations recognize that equity, inclusion, being diverse, paying attention to social justice increases our bottom line, makes our people want to stay here and work forever, makes our patient outcomes better, then the value of devoting resources, whether it's administrative support, bringing on additional team members, Renumerating some of these efforts, recognizing these efforts as scholarship and awarding academic credit, that that argument, that parallel will become more easy for our leaders to see um, because it's working side by side. These are not separate, separate entities. Okay, thank you, Dr. Taylor. Um, one more question. I think we're, we're getting towards the end of time, but I've got one, one really sort of for me a burning question, and and, and that is how do these DNI initiatives impact the sustainability of an organization? Ooh, um, that's that's an interesting question. I you know as part of our ODLC mantra, we 
one of our um, mission statements is about creating strategy for sustainable change. And it goes to a few things about organizations. And, and I would love to leave this as some take-home points for the listeners. Um, the reason this can be and should be and will be sustainable is the attention to the first piece of advice I have for organizations, which is one, solidify your mission. What is it when you talk about DE&I that your organization wants to do? What is your goal? And I think with this movement, you know, in the, since May of 2020, we've turned a moment to a movement. We are blasting with DEI, but have not necessarily stopped to ask ourselves, what is our goal here? And so that's what I advise people to do for sustainability is number one, get your stakeholders, your decision makers together and decide what is our mission? What is our goal? Is it that we want to diversify our faculty or our team members? Is it that we want to eliminate or mitigate health care disparities? Uh, is it that we want to be more diverse in our recruitment of our learners, our medical students, our residents? You have to really hone in on what is your goal. And you can have multiple goals, but you need to have focus and shared agreement with the key stakeholders. Otherwise, you will end up with uncoordinated chaos with no outcome. So number one, you have to have a shared agreed upon mission. Number two, for sustainability, I advise people to look at your organizational structure. Is the way things are reported, is the, the functional or divisional hierarchy conducive to equity? How are compensation models adjudicated? How are people really paid? How are resources allocated? Look within the organization. How is business done? And see if, despite the great work that your diversity group might do or that your leaders might take on to be inclusive, does our structure work against that? So that's my second piece of advice for sustainability um, optimization is really look and evaluate your organizational structure and your reporting and see if there's opportunities to change. And then one last piece of advice I'll leave for sustainability is you have to, and this is hard, you have to come up with some KPIs or key performance indicators of success. And that is very synergistic with you know, a business mindset, but how will you measure you've achieved a goal? We all know that incentives have to be achievable. If you want to give someone motivation to do something, you have to make it seem as if there is something they can do and achieve. Otherwise, it seems futile. People lose interest. It's never going to end. Why would we do this in the first place? But if you set some good metrics, some good targets, and it does not have to be quantitative, it can be the absence of complaints about harassment. It can be improvement in culture scores. It can be more retention of all types of faculty. It could be more equity and compensation. Just set some KPIs that give people goals to work towards. And I think the sustainability will work within those parameters. Um, so those are the three things. Shared mission, look at your structure, set some good target metrics that make sense. Look beyond healthcare for research on what those KPIs could be, which ones fit your organization, and then get to work. Great. Thank you, Dr. Taylor. It's really been tremendous. It's been really fun to have this conversation and, and, and as you say, to, to leverage your expertise and experience. So thank you so much for joining us. It's a fascinating discussion. We could probably go on all day, but you know, I think one of the things that I heard, which, which fills me with a little bit of joy as being a little bit invested in this, obviously, 
is that this is really going to work only through collective and intentional action. We need to change the culture and climate. But of course, as you said, the first step is to engage with stakeholders and figure out, in a sense, where the challenges are and where the obstacles are. And that's really been the working remit of the AO Access Programme, is to begin to look at the membership to try and identify where the challenges are, but more importantly, where the opportunities are for change. So I really think the advice you've given us is tremendous and very timely. And we look forward certainly to talking through all of those issues and engaging more broadly as we move forward. But through the task forces that are existing now and the new task forces, we very much hope to be able to do a lot of the things you've, you've identified. So thank you again so much for being a great guest for this podcast. Thank you. And, and again, um, you know, much gratitude to the AO Foundation, AO Access. Thank you for all the work you are doing and will continue to do and happy to be a part of it. Thank you for listening to the AO Access to Success podcast series. Be sure to visit our webpage to facilitate your personal and professional development by exploring dimensions of leadership at AO Foundation. Who we are, about AO, AO Access. To join the conversation.